Alright, so where you guys are in Romans chapter 7, this is a really, you know, amazing chapter in the Bible. You know, Romans chapter 7 tells me a lot about someone's perspective of not only the doctrine of sin, and the title of this message is The Doctrine of Sin, but how people see and view the doctrine of salvation, because it tells us so much about, let alone what sin is, but there is a war waging between the flesh and the spirit. And Romans chapter 7 and 8, go through that in great detail. Because to be saved, we need to put our faith in Christ. But we need to acknowledge, first and foremost, when we go out and preaching the gospel to others, we explain the doctrine of sin, that all of us have sinned. Romans chapter 3, just a couple of chapters right before this, taught us clearly, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Not only that, in verse 10, it goes on to read, you know, as it is written, where? In the Old Testament. So this is not a New Testament phenomenon. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. I am not righteous, you are not righteous. Anyone who thinks that they don't have sin is far from the truth. We need to, when we explain the good news of salvation, need to explain first the problem. You've sinned. I've sinned. We've all sinned. And we all come short of God's standard or His glory. God's standard is be perfect or be holy as He is holy. None of us are perfect. Why? Because we've sinned. Well, what is sin? You don't need to turn there, but it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. The word to transgress is to go against something. The law of God is commandments given to mankind. Throughout the Bible, there's lots of commandments. And breaking those commandments is a sin. The Bible talks about, He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That means if you know to do something that is from the Word of God and you don't do it, you've just sinned. Not only that, but it's basically just, you know, when I explain it to children, the best way I explain it is it's breaking the rules. I think everyone can understand that. Because even a child can understand the message of salvation. As long as they're using the Word of God to explain these things for them. The word transgression may go right over a kid's head. And they're kind of like, whoa, that's a big word. It just means breaking the rules. You've broke the rules. I've broke the rules. Sometimes you'll get a kid saying like, no, I never broke the rules. And you just tell them, okay, have you ever disobeyed your parents? They should know really quickly that, yeah, I have. So it's like, well, there's your first sin. And of course, there's more than that. Not only that, the Bible teaches that for our sin, something happened. What happens to someone when they sin? The Bible teaches that our spirit dies. See, everyone is made up of a trichotomy. We have a flesh, mind, and spirit. A body, soul, and spirit. What you see is my flesh. We see the observable world, right? We can see each other. That is what communicates visually to each other, is our flesh, our body. But our soul or our mind is that which communicates to each other. You know, people who have personality, they can be found that it's inside of their soul or in their mind. What makes David a David? What makes someone someone is their, what they like, things that are unique to them, their flavors, their, you know, everything that is equated to them is known as their soul. But the Spirit is that which communicates to God. You know, when someone sins, their spirit dies. Now, 
Look down at your Bible at verse 7. The Apostle Paul explains that in this passage. Notice what it says in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. You know, one of the Ten Commandments, right, is thou shalt not covet, the last of the Ten Commandments. So basically it's saying that, are you saying that the law of God is sin? Because once you acknowledge it, that's, that I, I've broken it, then that's bad. God forbid. No, it's not the law that's the problem. It's our inability to fulfill the law. Because we have a sin nature and we are able to choose to not do the right thing. It goes on to read, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Now notice that second part. I'm not going to go into the definition of concupiscence, and it's, it's you know, just look at the second part of the word. You notice the word cupid in it, so it has to do with lustful thinking and things like that. But it says in the second part of the verse 8, For without the law, sin was dead. Now, there's a time in people's life where they cannot comprehend things of sin. And this is what's known as the doctrine of the age of accountability. I'm going to go into that in just a moment, but there comes a time when a person is born into this world and they're without sin. It's not that they have not sinned, they cannot recollect their sin. And I'll go more into that in just a moment. Let's keep reading. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and watch this, and I died. Now when Paul is speaking right there that I died, he didn't say he physically died. He's saying that his spirit died. You know, what does it say in Romans chapter 6? Right before this, in verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. What you earn through your sin is to die. Yes, physically, but also your spirit dies. So, it goes on to keep reading. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it, what did it do? Slew me. So, the Apostle Paul is saying that there was a time in his life before he knew the laws of God, before he comprehended the things of right and wrong and morality, that he was alive. He, he was, his spirit was alive. He was right with the, with the Creator, with God. But when he comprehended, when sin came in, he died. It killed him, not physically. Now, what do you mean by it, 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 it killed his spirit? Well, you don't need to turn there. Actually, turn, if you would, uh, one page over to Romans chapter 8. But here's another couple examples of what I'm saying that the Bible teaches that when someone dies, if they are not born again, they cannot have a relationship with God. Because it's what communicates to God is our spirit, right? John 4 chapter 23 says, But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him, and God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So, the unsaved, the people who are walking around, who are unregenerated, their spirits are dead. They cannot, they do not have communication with God. The only prayer that the Lord hears of the unsaved has to do with 
them begging for salvation. How can they hear unless they be sent? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they've not known? So one must explain to them the message of salvation to bring that dead spirit back to life so that they can have a communication to the Father. Jesus Christ says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now when we go into the doctrine of the age of accountability, actually, let me backtrack one more second, the quickening aspect. Notice where you are in Romans chapter 8, verse 10. The Bible reads, And if Christ be in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the body is dead of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. That word quicken has to do with made alive. You ever heard the passage where it says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? It's not saying that it is fast. It's saying that it is brought to life. The Word of God is alive. It's quick and powerful. So, Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, this is not saying in light of salvation. This is saying that you will reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap everlasting life and blessings. Because the Bible says we should not walk in the flesh if we're born again and our spirit is made alive. We have the ability to. That's why, you know, if you wanted to, you can look back in chapter 7 when Paul talks about his struggle with sin. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You know, there's a false teacher out there named Paul Washer who teaches there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Funny, the Apostle Paul said, I'm carnal, sold under sin. For the thing which I allow, not that, for, for which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If I do that which I would not, I consent on the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth, I, that dwelleth in me. Go back to chapter 8. Notice what it said in verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. If you put to death the old man, the one that is not born in perfection, the one who is not born again, the old man, is the one who has lived the life of sin, who chose to be an idiot and not follow the commandments of God. Jesus Christ says, you must deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow me to be called a disciple. Not to be called saved. To be saved, all we have to do is believe, trust, have faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you want to be a disciple or you want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, mortify to yourselves the deeds of the flesh. Put to, self your, put to death your old man. Pick up your cross and follow after me. 
Now you can be called a disciple. Now you can be called someone who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But it goes on to say, in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself. Now notice that first Spirit is the capitalized Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our Spirit. That's a lowercase Spirit. My Spirit. Your Spirit. Spirits of Christians who have been brought back to life. That we are the children of God. God said to be born again, right? In John chapter 3. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what follows John chapter 3, verse 3? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This message is not on salvation. I hope that I'm already preaching to the choir and everyone already understands the message of salvation, born again. We're talking about the doctrine of sin. What is it? It's the transgression of the law. What happens? Your spirit is dead when you comprehend sin. But... There are lots of people who then struggle with this because it is true. you got to think, what about the unborn babe in the womb? What about the baby who unfortunately dies in a car accident? Or a friend that you know that has Down syndrome and can't think correctly and can't comprehend just normal functions and cognitive understandings of the things of God? What about them? The Bible teaches that they are not considered safe. They are considered safe. This is the doctrine of the age of accountability. Because a baby cannot tell you, I'm a sinner, I deserve to go to hell for my sin, and I put my faith in Christ. They are just trying to not poop their pants and cry for food when they're hungry. You know, the Bible teaches salvation is likened unto a new birth. You're born again. As babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby, there's milk and there's meat in this Bible. But babes need milk. They need to just get what is essential, fundamental, something that they can digest and take and grow in their faith to move forward. But I can't go deep into this doctrine because that's kind of outside of the scope of what I want us to understand. But it's important because turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of the Bible. While you turn there, I'm going to read from you from 2 Samuel. This is an example of the Bible teaching the age of accountability. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 22, And he said, while the child was yet alive, this, let me give you a quick um, context. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and the product of that adulterous union, there was a baby that was born. God said, I am going to curse you and kill the baby. David is begging and praying and fasting that the Lord would have mercy on him. The people around him are tripping out because they're like, why are you fasting? Why are you, or no, why are you eating and all that stuff? Because shouldn't you like now or like beg the Lord to try to keep your baby alive? He says, who can tell if, the God's mercy, if God's mercy will be true? Because he said, the baby's going to die. So he just took it upon himself to see what would happen. And it reads, and he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore, should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David is saying, when I die, I will go where the child is, where he is, not going to be where he was, in heaven. 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just one example. I can point to others. That'll get its own message at another time. When it comes to this, some people kind of are like, okay, well, how will we know when someone can comprehend the doctrine of sin? Or how do we know when someone knows their child is of age or their friend who has like Down syndrome or mental indabilities can comprehend the subject? The best example I can point to is found in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Now, notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2. This is the story of the first time God, you know, not only created man, but sin entering into the world. And it says in verse 6, it reads, But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is that, is that which compasseth the whole land of Havaliah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittichel, that it is which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But, this is what's known as a conjunction in our English language, right? But, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. There's the commandment. So there was a time when Adam did not have a command to do something. He was born. He showed him the garden. He was fine. He was perfect at that point. And then he said, don't eat that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do so, did it say you might or you shall die? It said, For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So, now, turn if you would to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it reads in verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First thing he does is put doubt in the woman's heart. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, the word of God, the commandment, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So she understands at this point that if we eat that tree, we are going to die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan didn't come in with a direct lie. He came in with a white lie or a, a gray statement. Because he says, you shall not surely die. Rather, you'll be as God, knowing good and evil. Now let me ask you this question. Did they die the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, they did not physically die. Their spirits died. Now let's keep going on and reading. It says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And this is a very, uh, I like this verse a lot, and you know, I'll go on to this uh, sir, I'll go on to this verse a little bit more in light of the doctrine of the Trinity when we get there. Notice what it says. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. You know, we understand that Jesus Christ is the word of God. God said, let there be light. The second member of the Godhead is who I believe was walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Now, I believe when he says, where art thou? It's not because he didn't know physically where he was, but there was a moment where his soul was, or his spirit was gone. There was a moment where his spirit was there. He noticed the spirit is gone. He says, where art thou? And it goes on to read, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me, or to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. This is a prophetic passage right here in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows in thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, remember the commandment, he told him not to do this, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, for in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all thy days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. There's the Trinity again, right off the bat in the Bible. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth, from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So I read that whole chapter for what reason? Okay, we get it. We know the story of Adam and Eve. We know the story of the serpent. We, we understand that the fall of man and all this, what it teaches. But this is what I want you to know. A child, when they are one, two, and three years old, tend to walk around naked and not think much of it. They don't really care that they're naked. They're not ashamed of their nakedness. 
This, I believe, is a symbolism to help parents to understand the age of accountability. When a child can start comprehending that they are naked is a good time for you to explain to them the message of salvation. Because normally a one-year-old or two-year-old is going to try to burst out the house without any clothes on, but a three, a four, maybe five-year-old, they start to want to cover themselves up because they comprehend that there's good and evil, right and wrong, doing what is told you and not told you. This is a good measuring stick to look to your children to understand now's the time for them to hear the message of salvation. Or your friend who has Down syndrome or someone who has a problem with thinking because, you know, they don't know that they have sin unless they can start understanding what is right and wrong, good and bad. And, you know, like I said, I'll give it its own message a little bit more due diligence for the doctrine of the age of accountability. But it matters in light of this subject, the doctrine of sin. Because at this point, sin entered into the world. And not only that, I'll leave you on one last thought on this. Notice the song that we sing during Christmas, the, the, the great Christmas hymn, right? In reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Jesus Christ is known as a second Adam. The Adam here, there is a symbolism of the Lord Jesus Christ because when Eve took of the knowledge of the good and evil, Adam knew not to take it, right? But he chose to take it on for her as well. He deliberately disobeyed. What, whose sin do you think was worse, Adam or Eve's? It was Adam. The woman was deceived. Adam deliberately disobeyed. I'm not saying the Lord Jesus Christ deliberately disobeyed the Father. What I'm saying is that he who knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we may be known as the righteousness of God in him. This is a symbolism of Jesus Christ being the second Adam because he came and took on the penalty for sins on himself to die for his wife and mankind. You don't believe me? Well, notice what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. You turn, actually, if you would, to James chapter 2. It says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. That's another message coming soon to a theater near you. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. They both transgressed. They both disobeyed the law. They both, dis they both did the wrong thing, but Adam's was worse than Eve's. Now, with this subject of the doctrine of sin, I have to point this out, because there is a false doctrine out there known as all sin being equal. That is not found in the Bible. The Bible does not teach that all sin is equal. As a matter of fact, I think you're borderline insane if you think all sin is equal. There is a big difference between taking a pencil from work and murdering someone in cold blood. And we understand that from a human perspective. How much more God, whose ways are above our ways, whose thoughts are above our thoughts. Now it is true that sin will take anyone to hell, any sin. And that's where I'm going to go into. James chapter 2 is a passage that a lot of people misunderstand and misquote, or they misuse to teach this false doctrine of all sin being equal. That is not what this passage is saying. Notice what it reads in verse, let me get there, 8. 
If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. That's the context. We just came from a question and we went into a semicolon. I'm sorry, a colon, which is not the ending of a thought, but this is the context of what we're about to read. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. See? Ha! If you offend in one point, you're guilty of all the laws. Wait, let's keep reading. Does that mean if I stole something, it's the same as murdering someone? Does that mean if I've lied, that's the same as committing a sexual perversion? No. It goes on to read, for, the word for can be likened unto the word because in our modern vocabulary. Remember that sign, wanted for murder? In the old western films, it's wanted because of murder. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. So there's two separate sins right there. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of, notice this word, the law. Not all laws, the law, the law of God, the commandment. And the context told us in the beginning, love your neighbor as yourself. These two hang all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to sleep with his wife. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill his wife. Because of that, you are able to do all these things that are incorrect. That is what the Bible is teaching. Not all sin is equal. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ teaches and tells us the opposite, blamed outright. It says in John chapter 19, verse 11, you don't need to turn there. If you would, turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. John 19, verse 11 says, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. So there's not sins that are equal. Greater implies there's a lesser. So there are lesser sins and greater sins. And it goes on. There's another passage in Matthew 23, verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, for a, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. So there's a penalty that is greater than others, depending on the amounts and types of sins that people have done. They have greater damnation. You have the greater sin. Not all sin is equal. There is a Jeffrey Dahmer sitting here, and then there is a dumb teenage punk. These are not equal. No one would look at Jeffrey Dahmer and say that this, what he does is equivalent to what he has done. That, you, you're outside of the line of logic. Period. That's what the Bible is teaching. A good example that I give is, for instance, Matthew chapter 5, right? It talks about that if we look upon a woman to lust after her, we've committed adultery already with her in our heart. If I look on a woman that's not my wife and lust after her and think dirty thoughts, I'm in sin. And it's as if I've committed adultery already with her in my heart. But it's worse if I actually go and do it. Because there is a criminal law that the Bible teaches. There's moral law and criminal law. If I looked at a woman to lust after her, I do deserve to die and go to hell for my sins. But if I physically go and be with someone that's not my wife, not only do I spiritually also deserve death and hell, but also physically I deserve to die according to the law of God. See, this is why the Bible lays out different punishments for different sins. Some sins are 
worthy of returning, depending if you stole something. Some sins are worthy of beatings. And some sins are worthy of death. And that's it. There's no jail. There's no rehabilitation. There is no, you know, inhumane systems. God says, return, beat, or die. But when we beat someone, you're to forgive and forget. When you return whatever it was you stole fourfold or sevenfold, you forgive and forget. But sins that are worthy unto death, that is a big, gruesome thing that we need to take seriously. Adultery, you know, kidnapping, these sins that are, the Bible says in First John, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it word perfect, but basically there's a sin that is unto death. I pray that you, I, I hope you don't pray for it, but there's a sin that's not unto death. And I want you to pray for that. And it's in First John, I think, chapter 5. When you have time, take a look at it. But that's, in a nutshell, what it's trying to teach. So, with that being said, you've got to understand that there are sins of omission and sins of commission. What are these? Sins of commissions are basically doing what you should not do, right? Thou shalt not lie. So when you don't lie, you've obeyed the law. When you don't kill, you've obeyed the law. When you don't do these things, that's sins of commission. But there are sins of omission. Sins of omissions are not doing what you are supposed to be doing. For instance, Christians are supposed to be going to church. After you get saved, you should be getting baptized. After you get baptized, you should read your Bible daily. You should be doing all sorts of things. And if you're not doing those things, that's considered sin. Like I said earlier, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sitteth not. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, this is King David, the psalmist, singing. In Psalm 19, you don't need to turn there. Say where you are in Galatians. But it says, this is King David, a man after God's own heart. Remember earlier when we were talking about his adulterous affair with Bathsheba? He was supposed to be put to death. What was the law teaching when someone committed adultery? Both of them shall be put to death. He wasn't. Therefore, God judged him by putting his child to death. Nevertheless, his heart was right with God. He repented. He wanted to make sure that the Lord's wrath wasn't on him, but that his mercies would be on him. And God can see our hearts. We can only judge what people think by how to the abundance of the heart the mouth will speak. You know, I'm not going to judge a person only on their actions, but by what they say. And the psalmist, David, in Psalms 19, verse 8, says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them they are, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. They shall, then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. David is saying, Lord, forgive me of sins I don't even know I'm doing. Look, I have sin that I do every day. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. Now, praise the Lord, He died for all my sins, not just the sins of my past, but the sins of my future that I'm going to do. But 
David is begging the Lord, saying, please forgive me of the sins that I don't even know I'm committing. So, what's the conclusion of the matter? What is sin? The doctrine of sin teaches simply that it's the transgression of the law, breaking the commandments of God, not following the rules. What happens? Your spirit dies. Once your spirit dies, it can only be brought back to life in one of two ways. Either you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or you live a perfect life, which I take that back because if your spirit died, then you didn't live a perfect life. So never mind, scratch that. But theoretically, the Bible does teach if you live a perfect life, you'll have eternal life. But we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all have to put our faith in Christ. That's why the rich young ruler, remember, he comes to Jesus and he says, what good things that must I do to have eternal life? Thou knowest the commandments. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not do all these things. He says, all these things I've done from my youth up. What lack I? He says, one thing you lack. So all that you have, go and sow to the poor and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because Jesus knew he didn't keep the law. You think you convinced the Son of God that you've done everything right from your youth up? It's, anyways, that's a, another message for another time. But... Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing that will bring your dead spirit back to life. If you know a loved one whose child dies that's under, you know, three-year-old or someone who you know as a friend who has Down syndrome, if they die and it's like, oh, I saw them doing bad things and they, they messed up, it's like, look, you can rest assured that they are safe because they couldn't comprehend sin. Not only that, not all sin is equal. Don't let anyone trick you into that. I don't care what anyone tries to tell me that like, oh, well... You know, just don't believe it. it's it's a lie from the pit of hell, in my opinion. But with that being said, there's sins of omission and sins of commission. What's the conclusion of the matter? We go around evangelizing. When we go door to door and preaching the gospel, the message of salvation, this is the first thing we start. The five steps of salvation, the Romans road, right? The, the first thing we want them to know is you are a sinner. If you can't even admit and start there, then what are you being saved from? Next, or this Sunday, we're going to go into the next subject, the doctrine of hell. But we just need the, the person to know that they have sinned. In all the times I've evangelized, guess how many people have said they're not a sinner or they've never sinned? I could probably count them on one hand. 99% of people understand, yep, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've done something wrong, I've broken the laws of God, some way, somewhere, some shape, and somehow. I've done it. So, the, the sin... It's supposed to drive people to Christ. It's supposed to drive you to beg the Lord for salvation. Like I said earlier, remember, the unsaved, the only prayers that God hears of them is how to be saved. If they want a car, He's not going to give them a car. If, he, if they want a house, He's not going to give them a house. If they want, you know, things that are of this world, why would He give them that and they die and go to hell? The only thing He wants them to know is, find me. He says, ask and you shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. In reference to the unsafe. Anything other than that, why would he get why you know why would he bestow that upon them? You're in Galatians chapter three, right? Let me get there myself. Because Galatians chapter three gives us the conclusion in light of what I'm talking about. It drives us. It's supposed to drive the unsaved to the Lord. It says in verse 21, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a lawgiver which could have given life, or given that which it could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we, sh that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And here's the, the, the conclusion of the matter. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. When we preach the message of the gospel, we need to start off with explaining to people sin. I don't know if you guys know who Ray Comfort is, but this guy is a phony who goes around preaching that you need to stop sinning to be saved. We do not, the Bible does not teach you need to stop sinning to be saved or repent of your sins. I just simply ask anyone, when they say you need to repent of your sins to be saved, all I say is show me one passage in the Bible that says we must need to repent of our sins to be saved. Not only is it not found anywhere in the Bible, the Bible clearly teaches, like we just saw in Romans 7, like we just saw in Romans 8, when someone believes there is a war struggling that they can do. They can walk in the old man, or they can walk in the new man. They can serve the flesh, or they can serve the spirit. The unsaved can't serve the spirit. The spirit is dead. They are just walking in the flesh all the time, and someone has to preach them the words of life, the words of God. These words that I preach unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Once they do so, why do you, why do you think uh, the apostles and Jesus Christ went to the whores, the publicans, the derelicts of the world? Because they knew they were sinners. They understood that they had problems and they needed a savior to save them. They knew that. And mark my words, you know who are the hardest people to get saved? It's not the, it's not the derelict, it's not the crackhead. It's the self-professed righteous person who thinks their righteousness will take them to heaven. It's not in works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to His mercy are we saved. So let's make sure when we go out to preach the message of salvation, you know, we're going to explain how we go through the plan of salvation to people. And this is the first step, you know, explaining the doctrine of sin. Explaining, and you don't need to go through a whole hour-long sermon on the subject. All you got to do is just say, in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? Yep, move on. Don't need to beat a dead horse. If they know they've sinned, you don't need to tell them, well, what sins did you do? Are you a drunk? Are you a crackhead? What, what, what did you do? It's like you don't need to pry into people's past. You just say, do you acknowledge you're a sinner? Yes. Go on to the next point. And when we do that, we're going to be able to help people understand salvation. 99% of people won't argue with you at this point. But for the saints to help understand this doctrine will help us to know how to go into the lost and have genuine love for them because they are blind and they cannot see. They need to be shown the glorious gospel, the light of salvation. Let's go ahead and uh, have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for explaining to us uh, how you see the doctrine of sin and you know giving us a heart for the lost to go out and explain to them that you know we've all sinned and we all come short of the glory of God, but that if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be saved from their sins. And I just ask that you help uh, light a fire in us and help us to get excited to go and share your message and keep us from you know our own presumptuous sins, as David said, help forgive me of secret sins that I'm not doing or secret faults that I've not known I've done. Even though we know we don't need to continue a life of righteousness to be saved, you ask that you help us to learn to 
you know, draw closer to you. And you said, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments and help us to not be black sheep, but to be ones in whom you're well pleased. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. It was a bit shorter this time, wasn't it? So you said, Eve said, you said Satan said to Eve what? Uh, in, sorry, one second. In Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 or 3? Yeah, don't look it up.